International Broadcasting lives on 5085. The big one. WTWW. Please stand by as we get ready to launch another episode of this Reality Radio Cafe Cast with your host and my husband, Denny J, K5DCC. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition, lift off. Now grab your glass and get ready to fill it up with some radio on the rocks. Vehicles pitching downrange. And there was a big old tree right outside my bedroom window. And on the other side of the street, there was a street lamp. And the street lamp cast shadows from the blowing leaves in the tree if there was a wind at night and so there was sort of a moving pattern on my wall <laughs> which which was kind of eerie to begin with but then an owl took up living in the tree that was scary <laughs> so you're laying in bed trying to go to sleep. You've got your favorite teddy bear nestled up against you, and this owl starts hooting. Oh, my. I was terrified. Not only that, the next day, my favorite teddy bear went missing. Uh-oh. But later that day... And this was back in a period of time and when the post postman actually came to your door. The houses had slots in the door instead of mailboxes out on the street. And so the postman came, but this time he knocked on the door. My mother answered, and the postmaster said, I have a package for Master Jimmy Brown. So I was called to the door, and there was this box, and I was puzzled. I had no idea why the postman was delivering this box just for me. I don't recall ever getting a package just to me before. So I opened it up, and lo and behold, there was my favorite teddy bear. But there was a note inside the, the package. And I'm not sure I could read. Um, my mother read it to me. Dear Jimmy, I found this teddy bear and I thought I would return it to you. Signed, The Good L. My dad, although a chemistry professor, was also a master psychologist. <laughs> very, and I was very smart. It took away. I was, I was not afraid of the owl any longer. In fact, the owl was my friend after that. Oh, sweet! <laughs> That's a cute story. I wish I had started recording earlier. I, I missed a lot of that in the beginning there, but that was a cute story. 
Well, anyway, I'm, I'm rebooting my computer again, but I'm, I'm staying on my phone for the present time, and I turned on the recording here, mid-story. And uh, I don't know if you noticed the link I just shared. No, I haven't. Just a minute. About uh, SWR. Is SWR really all that important? And it was uh, David's post about the counterpoise on an HT that kind of made me think of it. You know, maybe maybe I should do a quick search on SWR and antenna performance. You know, is it really critical? Because I'm always thinking you've got to have the lowest SWR possible, and you surely don't want to transmit with SWR over three to one. In fact, my antenna tuner will refuse to tune anything over three to one on my radio. And so I did a quick search, and I came up with this interesting article, and it was talking about all the myths about SWR and antenna performance. Quite fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I'm reading it now. So maybe maybe I can't just go across all of my uh, HT antennas and rate them by SWR for performance. Maybe that doesn't really mean that much. What do you think? I think you've raised an interesting hypothesis, or this article has. So, well, and, and one of my specialties uh, in journalism was computer-assisted reporting, which is essentially number crunching. I was teaching journalists how to interview data. They already knew how to interview people. But data have a story to tell, too. Yeah. And the, the issue is when we taught this, we always said, you know, you can't just put data in an, in an article. You've got to personalize it. And uh, you, you've got to have multiple inputs, too, to a story. So, so are numbers enough? That's essentially the question here. Uh, is it meaningful, number one, and is it sufficient to determine whether you have a good antenna set up? So, I guess you'd have to test the SWR and your various uh, handy talkies, and then you'd have to pick your favorite local computer and start testing all of your antennas at various distances from that repeater as close as you could to the same time frame because you know over time something might change naturally in the environment but now you're suggesting performance should be added to the equation that's an interesting question so do you see the uh, questions that they list as myths or statements in the bullet article? points. The, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at the bullet points right now. You know, I, I read through them and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then it says, you know, let's uh, deal with these myths. Those are myths? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that those were myths either. Yeah. Of course, everything right now is new to me. Yeah. We should have our friend John here right now. I bet he'd yeah. have a good answer for us. <clears throat> but for our audience, here we have uh, this article 
is entitled, Will Low SWR Always Ensure a Good Antenna Setup? And then they have these bulleted myths, they call them, such as achieving a low SWR is the single most important factor for an antenna setup. Well, I would, I would say, yeah, but he says it's a myth. An ATU or an antenna tuner at the transceiver end will reduce SWR loss on the transmission line. I would say, yeah, that's what my radio does. High SWR in the transmission line is invariably a recipe for a poor antenna. I would normally think yes. High SWR in the transmission line produces excessive noise, pickup, and EMI and RFI. Well, I know that to be a fact because I had one time when I was much younger, had my my 1,200-watt station, heat kit station that I built going into uh, must have been a poor antenna coax or something or maybe a poorly tuned beam because uh, I would transmit and my brother would complain that the uh, condescent lights in the bedroom below it would light up when the switch was off. <laughs> and I would get my lip burned if I was talking and touched the metal microphone. So I would think so. SWR on line decreases if length is a specific multiple or fraction of a wavelength. Well, that's what I've read over the years. I would imagine that's true. Longer length of coaxial cable line will reduce SWR to improve antenna performance. Now, that one, I would think, doesn't make sense. I've always heard you try and get your coax as short as possible, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to go through every explanation as he attacks each myth, but I'm definitely going to read it later. I might have to reconsider my thoughts about SWR. But I was thinking that SWR is what damages your radio, that if you transmit with high SWR, all that signal coming back into the radio will damage your output transistor or whatever, especially on these more delicate radios. That's what I thought. So anyway, something to consider. We're kind of getting into the deep of things here these days. Thanks to our good old nano SW and nano, what do you call it? Nano VNA. VNA, yes, nano VNA. Which mine will soon have a lovely case with a drawer. <laughs> yes. And right now I'm thinking about how to uh, write up the assembly instructions. Well, I actually have to assemble it? Some assembly required. <laughs> so, that, did that drawer, isn't that like all part of it? Did it come all in one print? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> there, there are one, two, three, four pieces. So, my wife gets this uh, kids play thing. It's a, it's actually a, a a geodesic dome that you put together and set it in the backyard, and oh, yeah. grandkids play on it, and they love it. And uh, but it comes in, in lots and lots of pieces, and of course. <laughs> I started slapping this thing together without carefully reading the instructions, which is a, I've noticed is a tendency of the male gender. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, yeah. 
pretty soon I get to a place, and this is not easy to put together, and pretty soon I get to a, a place, and finally I realize that those those links, the things I'm bolting together, there's actually three different links of them, which I had not paid any attention to. <laughs> and if yeah. you put the wrong length piece at the wrong place, it's not going to work. What would you so, call it? Would you would you any longer call it a geodesic dome? <laughs> would you well, it, it wouldn't fit together. <laughs> it wouldn't fit together. And, of course, it depends on the strength of the structure to hold the kids up if it's properly fitted together. Yeah. So, I was I was actually in Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome home. One time, it was a fascinating experience. Were you doing a video on it? No, I was I was actually in college at the time, and uh, do you, are are you old enough to remember Walter Cronkite? Oh yeah, you are there. Yep. And that's the way it is. And he would give the date. So he had a program called 21st Century. And this program was in the um, 1960s. And the, the program interviewed people talking about things that might happen in the future. And clearly, Buckminster Fuller was somebody to be interviewed. And he lived about, oh, I don't know, three or four blocks from my parents' house in Carbondale, Illinois. And uh, I was taking a portraiture class from C. William Horrell at SIU Carbondale at the time. At, at that period of time, my major was cinema and photography. And... One of the assignments was to follow a person for the entire semester and make lots and lots of pictures in that person, uh, some of them formal portraits and some of them candidate. And I thought, well, what the heck? I'm going to go for the gold and I'm going to uh, follow Buckminster Fuller. So I met with him in his office. And, of course, he's just an absolutely fascinating guy. And <clears throat> um, he eagerly agreed to let me do my project on him. And right at that period of time, Walter Cronkite was coming to town to interview him for uh, 21st, the program 21st Century. And so Bucky invited me to his home to, to photograph that. So I showed up, and uh, the producer was a 30-ish a guy from New York City who jumped around like he'd had 10 cups of coffee. And he had a Hasselblad camera. Ooh. And... And I could tell by the way he was shooting some pictures, and and I had a I had both my Nikon and my Hasselblad with me, and uh, the producer said, "Do you have a roll of color film?" And I said, "Yes," for the Hasselblad, 
And he said, would you shoot a roll for TV Guide? And I said, sure. So I shot some pictures with the Nikon, some with the Hasselblad. And um, they, Walter got actually, you know, the mic checks were done. They were actually ready to start filming. And so I was asked to leave. And the producer follows me out. And I take the roll of film out of my camera. And uh, I started to hand it to him. And I said, that'll be $125. And the young producer was incredulous. Oh, I thought you were doing that for free. And for once in my life, I, I thought of the right thing to say. Because you rarely do. And I said, <laughs> and, and first he said, well, you can't use those pictures. And I said, well, and I just had some coursework on legal aspects of photography. And I, then I said, well, I don't know how you're thinking, but uh, I'm in Buckminster Fuller's home at his invitation. So I think I've got a pretty good case. I can use these pictures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, he, he, his face got red and, uh, I took that roll of 120 film and I stuck it in my shirt pocket and I hopped in my 56. Well, what I said was, I forgot to tell you what I said. I, it, I, I conjured up my best Southern Illinois drawl and I said, well, I don't know how you fellers get along up there in New York City, but down here in Southern Illinois, we get paid for our work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And his his face got red and I took that roll of film and just very demonstrably put it in my shirt pocket and I hopped in my fifty six Chevy and I drove off. <laughs> uh, now I knew that all of the pictures he he was, was shooting would not be sharp because again uh, he he was acting like he had ten cups of coffee. <laughs> and he could he could not hold his own camera still. He just couldn't. Wow. And I, I thought, well this guy's never shot pictures before. He he can't he can't hold the camera still, you know. So the the follow up, this was probably on a Friday or maybe a Saturday, I can't remember. But on Monday, every course that I went to on campus the professor had this note for me, call this New York City number, it's an emergency. <laughs> <laughs> this was on a Monday. Every professor, now think about that, you know, what this guy would have had to go through to convince the university to contact all my professors with this emergency note. And I went home for lunch, I lived at home at the time, and my mother had a note. So he, he'd convinced the university to give give him my where I lived, and he called in the phone number. So, and my mother had a note: call this this New York City number. This was on a Monday. So about noon on Tuesday, <laughs> I returned the call because I I knew exactly what the situation was. Yeah. And I just, I was going to let him stew a little bit. 
<laughs> so a day later, I returned the call, and the conversation was pretty short. Did you process your film? Yep. Did it come out? Of course. Still $125? Yep. Put it on an airplane. So that's that's my Buckminster Fuller story. <laughs> but the the pro I never finished the project though. I eventually had to switch people uh, because uh, he gave me his itinerary, you know, because I wanted to follow him. <laughs> so he gave me his itinerary. Well, it was give a lecture in Japan on one day, fly to Paris the next day, give a lecture. Fly to Great Britain the next day. Fly to Toronto. Back to Carbondale for half a day. Then on to L.A. It was, it was just, he was barely in Carbondale. And when he was, it was not for very long. So I had to abandon that project. But uh, yes, it was a fascinating experience meeting the great Buckminster Fuller. <laughs> After whom, there is a carbon structure now named... It's called the Buckminster Fullerene. Huh. Interesting. Did I lose you? No, I just stopped oh. talking. I oh, didn't okay. say, oh, <laughs> yeah. unlike, unlike Daniel, unlike Daniel, I don't say over. Yeah. You remind me of that other guy that you said just walked away <laughs> when he was done. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yes. Anyway, I was... Uh, I was reminiscing as you were telling that story. Of course, you talk about your cameras. You know, I wasn't really a Nikon guy at the time. I was Pentax, but uh, I love my Hasselblad. And I was always, uh, always receiving compliments about my photography. I shot some weddings and things with it, and and uh, shot for Wedding World in Minneapolis, where you just uh, deliver the film and leave the uh, headaches up to them. <laughs> but everybody was always wondering how I got such great pictures. And I, I bet you'll agree with me. It's all about the lighting. It has nothing to do with the camera so much. It's all about the lighting. And I never would take straight on flash pictures. They're just always too harsh. So what I did is I, I made a little reflector that I would attach to the top of my flash. And I would point it straight up and bounce in. Or if I was in a situation where we had a nice white ceiling, a lower ceiling, I would always shoot with bounce flash. And they always turned out so beautiful and natural. Is that something you did too? Oh, yes. And back in flashbulb days, it was interesting because the flashbulbs, you always had a guide number and you had to divide the number of feet away your subject was into the guide number to get the f-stop. And uh, yep. so when you bounced, and of course, that diffused the light, made it a, a broad diffuse source rather than a point source, which is, generally speaking, much more pleasing. And uh, but that was a trick with uh, with bounce flash because you had to then calculate the distance of the flash to the ceiling back down to the subject, and then there would be a loss, you know, from the this how white the ceiling was or wasn't. Maybe it wasn't white. And if it was a black ceiling, just forget it. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, um, 
Yeah, but both color negative film and black and white film are fairly forgiving, so you just had to be in the zone yeah. to get a to get a good exposure. But oh yeah, yeah. And then I went to uh, I had a a Braun flash, and I ordered all the parts from Braun for the flash head, and I built my own bear tube at a, in a a piece of round. Uh, cylinder, it was a cylinder of plexiglass, and I built a bear tube in that, and I used bear tube for a while. And, but I always tried, if I was using direct flush, I always had a minimum of two. Uh, and they were off camera, you know, on tripod somewhere, or uh, light stand somewhere. Yeah. And uh, multiple flashes. Uh, let's say you have a very high ceiling or a dark ceiling. Multiple flashes pointed at the subject also give you a fairly soft Great. appearance. Yeah. But one flash on the camera, that's just a no-no. Yeah. Yeah, for the big, for the big uh, group pictures, of course, up in the front of a church, we would, would always have the slaves running the side cameras or whatever, too. But they were never as, uh, as pleasing to my eye as having nice, soft bounce flash. And, you know, with the Hasselblad, you can do so many tricks with it. You know, we'd have the little uh, frame splitter, you know, with the box in front of the lens. And you'd put one with the top open and one at the bottom. And we kind of blend together as kind of a blended image. And But it was always funny. All the pictures that I worked hard at using all the fancy tricks, you know, the star filter for the candles and the, the Vaseline smeared around the edges of your your lens filter to give you that soft uh, kind of a blurring as it comes into clarity, they would never go for those. They always went for just the normal shots. So I finally gave up with all the fanciness and just stuck with some good old pictures with bounce flash, and everybody loved those. Well, I got to the to the point where I refused to do post pictures. I said, yeah. you know, I'm just, I'm just going to do candid, whatever I like to shoot. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you want post pictures, hire an actual wedding photographer who will do <laughs> post pictures. Yeah. But, but back in the seventies, I was shooting weddings, photojournalism style. And now of course that is the style. Yeah. 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 And I suppose you shot in Veracolor too, I imagine. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, those were the days, man. Brings back memories. By the way, did you watch that video I shared with you yesterday in the studio? Not yet. Okay. Because I was trying to get an order in for antenna parts. I'm going to build the John Portune six-meter inverted delta. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm really anxious to hear how that turns out for you. I might want to do something like that here, too. But you being a, a editor, video editor, audio editor... I thought you'd really enjoy that that video showing us in the studio. Yeah, I uh, all that all I, that gear. And... I will watch it. Yeah. Well, you know, we talk about bounce flash and how it's uh, the lights diffuse, so it kind of comes at the subject from many angles. That kind of goes back to our initial conversation we started with on SWR. You know, sometimes we just hit something head on, based on one perspective, and we just stick with that we we blow everything else off but maybe all these subjects need to be approached like a bounce flash just kind of come at it from many angles and illuminate it 
properly so we can get a, a good understanding of some of these concepts. I guess it's not just uh, black and white, is it? Well, you, you, now you're you're actually drawing an analogy to my field, journalism. The, yeah, really. A good a good journalism story comes at an issue from a variety of viewpoints. Yeah, that's the kind of the Hebraic mindset that uh, we have moved into regarding our faith side of things. You know, um, they always say that a, a good Jewish person answers a question with ten other questions. <laughs> And it's like uh, you look at a diamond, you got a group of people looking at a diamond from different angles. They see something different. The light bounces off. Of course, as a photographer, we understand this. The light bounces off the facets uh, based on your location. And so everybody sees it a little bit differently. So I've learned through our uh, Hebrew roots journey that uh, the black and white, you know, you got to believe right. This is what you got to believe and, or else you're wrong. That kind of uh, mentality is is really not a wise way to approach life. We have to realize everybody's coming at this from different angles, experiences, perspectives, and see something different. And we need to take the time to listen and uh, let them share what they're seeing of a situation that so we can get a better perspective of it and uh, perspective of it. So I think we're both coming at life kind of from the same viewpoint, same uh, thought process anyway. Indeed. Indeed. So, <laughs> um, what was I going to say? I've already forgotten. <laughs> it was incredibly cogent, too. You just have to believe that I had something, a really, really important reply, and maybe three weeks from now I'll remember what it was. <laughs> Well, you're probably blown away that I actually kind of sound uh, like a professor, but I've never even gone to college. <laughs> I could well. get pretty deep. <laughs> and of course, as I shared it with our episode with Mello, I, I do look at, at a lot of things and try and draw parallels to something other people can relate to. You know, that's why I chose this whole cafe theme, because a lot of people, and you've shared that you have the same experience with your own family. You start talking radio and their eyes roll back in their head. Oh, here he goes again. Whatever. They can't yep. relate to it. But everybody can relate to a cafe and a buffet. So that's why I keep bringing it back to this, you know, and help people, you know, be a little bit more kind about differences of opinions and things. You know, if you go to the buffet, you pick what you like and you leave the rest, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. And as we retired people and as we age, we tend to. I see this all over. John Portune has a group of buddies he converses with on Tuesday mornings, and or antenna specialist, or slot antenna specialist we had on the other day. And I have an old man's coffee group that meets on Wednesday mornings, and I also have uh, another group of friends who are all retired scouters, and at least twice a month. Together, we either hike or bike, bicycle, uh, together, and have lunch. And those, uh, and, and of course, you would have church groups, and and this is a ham kind of a ham radio group. And you know, I th I think I think people, you know, at the at the core is social interaction. Humans mm -hmm. are social beings. 
And like like many animals, uh, dogs, for example, cats, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but we are social, and and we like to get together and just talk about what happened in our lives. What's what's interesting? What's going on in your life that's interesting? So, we're my wife and I are driving to Southern Indiana later this morning to visit the wife of my graduate school roommate who unfortunately passed away a few weeks back. And uh, but we want to maintain that relationship. We all became friends because. My friend that died, he and I were roommates, and we met our future wives about the same time, and we all became friends in those days, and we don't want to lose that connection. So, it, it's just, uh, you know, as you go through life, it's just a series of social interactions, really. Over. <laughs> <laughs> Over. Over. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, it's important that we get out of our echo chambers, and it's natural to to want to hang around people that think just like us. But I remember years and years ago, my boss at the company I worked for in in the printing field, uh, he knew where I was coming from, and at that time, I was part of a very narrow-minded segment of the Christian world, where we thought we had the truth and nothing but the truth, and everyone else was going to hell. <laughs> Anyway, he was very wise, and he said, you know, I think it would be wise if you would get outside of your circle and start hanging out with other people so you can understand more about, you know, all the different ways people think. And I think you'd be a better person if you would do that. He was very kind in his presentation. And uh, lo and behold, it ended up that way. I just, uh, all of a sudden, my eyes were open, and I said, eh, I can't be part of this anymore. You know, you guys are too judgmental, and I disagree with you, and of course they judge me, and off we went. <laughs> yeah. And of course, ever since then, I've been on this—I uh, I call it my period of deconstruction, where I've torn down everything I was taught and believed in, and built from the ground up again, and uh, ended up with quite a different result. And of course, some people probably disapprove of that, but it is what it is. I am who I am, and I let other people be who they are. But it, we, it's good to get out of our echo chamber it's good to find people that we have things in common with so we can enjoy a social interaction for example you as a motorcycle uh, rider you know the thrill of riding a bike and the natural bond we have with other bikers regardless of our backgrounds you know going down the road we always wave at each other you know give us the peace sign or whatever there's there's a brotherhood of hams of uh, i mean bikers Probably much like there is a brotherhood of hams. You got yourself a license, and you're part of my group. But within those groups, you find a lot more narrow uh, divisions of uh, interests and beliefs and worldviews and whatever. I think it's good that we kind of stay with a general identity with the group. And maybe even that general identity could be, hey, you're a human too. <laughs> right. I remember in Texas, uh, my friends and I were riding to, I think it was Luckenbach, Texas, and uh, there were a, a group of, there, there was a, a motorcycle gang there, 
you know, with the patches, they were very rough looking. And uh, so my buddies were kind of hanging back. They didn't want to be anywhere near these guys. And so I just walked right up to them and said, hey, you guys look interesting. Uh, <laughs> you mind if I take your pictures? So I'm, I'm photographing these very rough characters and we're chit-chatting and you know, within a minute or so it was like I was their long lost buddy just yeah. just because I wasn't scared of them and I wanted to approach them and talk with them yeah one of the more interesting experiences I've had is the now retired editorial cartoonist for the Indianapolis Star Gary Varvel when there were about a hundred editorial cartoonists actively working in newspapers, the number is far fewer now. Uh, there were about nine conservative editorial cartoonists, and Gary was one of them. And he's way out there on the conservative liberal spectrum. He's out there, way out there on the conservative side. But I've always had an affinity for the work of editorial cartoonists because they have a knack of making a drawing that gets at the core of some issue in the news. Now, from my perspective, most of the cartoons, not all, most of the cartoons that Gary would draw, I was diametrically opposed to that viewpoint that he put in his cartoon. But he got at the core of the issue, right? But I just didn't, I just could not believe in his take on the issue. And I would think to myself, oh, Gary, you've gone off the deep end. And, uh, but I would, I would invite him to my class. And uh, he would come and engage with the students. He, by the way, was a very, was and is a very religious person. And he would engage with the students and tell them how he got into cartooning, et cetera, et cetera. And he would draw the students out in conversation to get an idea for a cartoon. Now, this was just an hour class. So he'd give his bio for 15 or 20 minutes, and he'd talk to the students for another uh, 15 or 20 minutes and get an idea. And then he would uh, start drawing. And the students, of course, we had a video camera on the, the where he was drawing. And later on, he was using an iPad, so it was really easy to project that. But <clears throat> the students would watch as he did a sketch in pencil, light pencil, and then he would start inking it. And by the end of one class period, he had a pretty finished editorial cartoon. So <laughs> in this period of the class in which he would elicit ideas from the students, the student would propose an idea and it might be an idea that, that he would consider somewhat more on the liberal spectrum. And he'd glance over at me and say, hey, Jim, you like that idea, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and then I would say, yes, Gary, that's a great idea. <laughs> and then he would go on to explain to the students why he could not draw that idea, because that was not in his 
worldview. It's not from his perspective. And then he would keep on talking until he got an idea that he could draw. So that interaction was always lots of fun for me. Uh, but that's an example of how liberals and conservatives can, in fact, get along. And, and of course, some of his cartoons were kind of in the middle of the spectrum. And I, th I thought, oh, that's a good one, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, uh, I was actually friends with one of the few conservative editorial cartoonists. Cool. Over, over. Oh, over. <laughs> so, what's our what if question of the day before our time runs out? Okay. Uh, by the way, I've, I've completely lost my time. Oh, it's 7.40 already. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a serious thought. Uh, as you might know, there was a, yet another mass shooting, this one in Indianapolis at the yeah, FedEx. I heard about that yesterday. Someone mentioned that. I thought, I bet you Jim's all over that. Yeah, it's, um, it's a disaster. And, of course, the, the shooter committed suicide, so we'll never know the actual reason. Though we, we do know he was... Uh, a former employee of this facility, which is often the case, isn't it? Yeah. Some, yeah. some disgruntled employee goes back to the post office or the FedEx yeah. distribu distribution point or yeah. wherever, some factory, and uh, shoots and kills. Well, there's at least eight people killed wow. and more injured. And uh, four of the eight were Sikhs and uh, members of that religious orientation. And so the whole Sikh community is afraid now in yeah. Indianapolis. So no one knows if this person was seeking out Sikh people to kill or whether they just happened to be in the area in, in which he decided to open fire. I'm putting that example, it's one of many mass shootings, and there's some related stuff. Uh, there's recent reporting that our special forces, the, the best fighters the U.S. military has, has a way too many racist and white supremacists. And of course, when some of these people get out of the military, they naturally migrate into police forces. And we, we talked with Mello the other day about that problem. That, you know, and I'm not condemning the whole of the police forces in the United States because most cops are, really do protect and serve. But there are reporting back through the decades that indicate that there is a significant subset of the police force that are white supremacists. And <clears throat> then there's a, the article that I read this morning about should police make traffic stops? Uh, and we know the history of these traffic stops, especially if the driver is black or brown. You know, there will be an air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror. 
in many states have laws against obstruction of the front windshield by anything hanging from the rearview mirror. So some police people will use that as a pretext for stopping a car, which sometimes results in the death of the person driving the car, or a broken taillight. Why should somebody die if they have some an air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror? Why should somebody die if they have a broken taillight? It makes no sense. The act, the act, the ultimate action is not proportionate to the offense, and so there, there is this thought that maybe police should not make traffic stops. Maybe it should be some other kind of employee. Um, but that's a that's an interesting question. What if police stopped making traffic stops and some other entity that was better trained to engage with with people in a traffic situation or better trained to provide some sort of mental health interaction if necessary. Uh, police are trained to pull weapons and and exert authority and that is not necessarily the way to defuse a tense situation so and i think that is the movement or the discussion behind defunding the police which the conservatives have taken uh, uh, to misinterpret uh, democrats don't want to get rid of the police force they're just questioning is there a better way to do some things that the police are now doing so that's that's the issue over <laughs> <laughs> well we we kind of lost a lot in the the gap between uh, being pulled over with something hanging from your rearview mirror and uh, the point at which the cop has to take out a gun and that mm-hmm. is how we how we respond and obviously, some people, like I was just pulled over the other day uh, when I was going through Omaha. And I right away when I saw him, I thought, oh, what, what speed am I going at? And I looked at the first sign that was coming my way, and I was well within that uh, that speed limit. I thought, uh-oh, is he going after me or somebody else? But he pulled me over. Apparently, I was going a little faster just before I got to that. But I was just very kind and very respectful. I didn't resist or complain. And uh he was very kind back and uh, ended up just giving me a warning. Um, but had I reacted in anger or in a threatening way of any kind, I'm sure he would have been more <laughs> have to pull out a gun and try and make me behave, you know. And so we, we often don't hear that side of a story. And I think what we really need in uh, our society is just more respect. Respect for authority, respect for... Uh, uh, our family members, our teachers, our professors, you know, just for one, respecting one another. And uh, unfortunately, we go back to this idea of this narrow-minded thinking. Politically, I'm hearing this a lot. Uh, this this party is good and this party is evil, regardless of what their behaviors are. And we, we put people in these boxes and we don't listen to their perspectives uh, in a kind way. And so uh, everybody is approaching life, well, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm good and you're evil. And we need to fight, fight, fight evil and fight, fight, fight this and that. It's all, uh, it's all in this mentality that we found ourselves in. 
And uh, I don't know what, what it's going to take to change it, to make people learn how to listen and respect one another and behave in a way that's non-threatening. Um, so, so I don't see this problem going away at all. I see there are more, more and more polarization happening in our world. And uh, it's always been part of nature as we fight. You see it in the animal world. Animals fight. You get in my territory, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going <laughs> to get you out of here. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's pretty serious. Of course, uh, the late Aretha Franklin would agree with you. Her signature song was R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Yeah, respect, yeah. Now, Milo is in the group now. I wonder what his comments would be on uh, police making traffic stops or whether some other trained person that was trained especially for traffic stops. Uh, Milo, what would you say of that, having been a police officer? Uh, good morning, first of all, gentlemen. Interesting conversation. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the the thing that often, I think people don't realize what can happen or what entails in a traffic stop. Uh, quite often when, I mean, it's it's sad to hear a lot of things that have been happening lately. Uh, I've, I've been on the job long enough to see that this wasn't something that was a normal thing that would happen. Uh, obviously, it seems to be happening more and more uh, as time has, as, as society has changed, as attitudes have changed, and obviously as the media has uh, put a certain narrative out there. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, we had this conversation before where there are many who don't belong I honestly believe don't belong on the job. And, uh, but traffic stops can be very, very dangerous. People don't realize how dangerous they can be. There's certain things that they train us to do, uh, certain things that we look for when we stop a vehicle. When you have, when you pull someone over, I mean, there's a population, there's certain aspect, uh, certain numbers of the population that, that, uh, believe that you, regardless of whether it's a police officer or anyone else, has the authority to pull them over. Uh, a lot of times they've already made up their mind what they're going to do before the person approaches the vehicle. Uh, quite often, which this is the aspect that doesn't make the news, but quite often bef as, as, the, as officers, we're reacting to whatever the person in the car is going to do. Uh, they've already made up their mind, so they already have the advantage. There have been many instances in where officers have approached the car and the person has already begun to shoot before the officer even makes it to the window. And those are the, those are the scenes that never make the news because it doesn't fit their narrative. And so to put someone, you know, they, they, they talk about these people who are counselors, who would respond to calls and who would respond to traffic stops. But when you get that person that all of a sudden you realize, hey, they're naked and they've greased their body and now you've got to put that under control and they're completely not in this. Their, their, their thinking is not even on this planet. Good luck. Uh, those things will go south really fast. A traffic stop, no matter sometimes how calmly you handle them, they will go sideways really fast 
because the person behind the wheel uh, maybe has in their mind, you know what, this person's going to find something out about me that's going to send me back to jail. And they will not give a second thought about killing the person that's approaching them. Uh, many times the, you know, the things that we use to be able to pull a vehicle over, whether it's uh, block division because they shouldn't have anything on their uh, rear, uh, rear view mirror or a, you know, a light being out or light being uh, equipment being damaged. Uh, those stops also have uh, revealed people who were wanted for murders, people, uh, kidnappings have been uh, thwarted. Uh, during traffic stops like that. Most of our best traffic stops as far as getting somebody who's uh, trafficking drugs um, and and many of the things that go have been from something as simple as, hey, you didn't replace your uh, you didn't replace your inspection sticker. And going through that, you end up finding other things. So you know it's it's it, it really is sad what has been portrayed of police. Uh, these days and with the whole defunding thing, I mean, even in uh, North Carolina to the state where I'm going to, some of the some of the leaders in, in, in the state have realized, you know, some of them that live in, in cities where they're starting to see crime increase and where they're starting to see where all of this defunding police is going, have made it that the state itself has said, if you defund the police, you will not get any assistance from the state because they see where this is going. And unfortunately, you know, we have these bad eggs on the job. We have people who who shouldn't really be on the job, who are getting on the job. And it's going to cause that's why guys are leaving in droves. When when you have the possibility that if I walk up to a vehicle or I respond to a call and the person doesn't like the way I handled it, even though I may not have done anything wrong and they make an accusation and now I could lose my house. I could I could lose my livelihood. The guys are walking away from the job going, nope, sorry, it's not worth it. Keep your keep your badge. But people don't realize where that's going to lead. The, the more the bad guy knows that there's nobody out there to stop him, nobody to intervene, that some counselor is going to show up. It's only going to get worse and worse. And, and so I don't see any real solution, unfortunately, because no matter how well you train the police, there's still going to be that one or two. That, that that are going to do this kind of thing that gives us a bad name and that's really what's going to be what's going to be put out there in the public eye so i, I don't see any real solution these days well <clears throat> that is a really good perspective who from someone who's actually been in the position and yeah. by the way i'm i'm not in favor of defunding the police that is not uh, any time you make any huge change in policy, there will be unintended consequences. And you're already pointing out uh, the fact that people who would serve the police forces uh, valiantly and honestly and with integrity are leaving the profession because they just don't want the hassle. And what I think the real, from my perspective, the real problem is, is uh, uh, racial profiling and white supremacists. The the minority of the police force who are white supremacists and and exhibit racial profiling all the time. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it just it just uh, is a terrible problem from my perspective. It it really is, and and you know, as I was listening, and Emily, and just so that we're clear, I I didn't think that you took that stand up. I was just uh, listening to uh, you know what you were saying, and and that's and that's part of the issue today is that uh, you know another another part of the issue is that people can't have these kind of discussions without have you know just listening to each other and hearing the perspective. And and without, you know, starting to becoming intolerant in in the conversation. But um, it's it's a difficult situation to deal with. It's it's there's no easy solution. Um, And and as long as there's a certain narrative that's being put out there, it's it's only going to make it more difficult to find a real solution. Um, You know, having being on this job and being a person of color, uh, it's, you know, I've been on both sides of the fence. You know, if it were not, there were many times that I pulled away from a stop thinking, man, if I didn't have my badge, that could have gone very differently. But because the person had no real reason to pull me over other than, hey, little Puerto Rican kid in a nice car uh, <laughs> probably has drugs in the car. And, you know, I, I think there was only one time where, there, where that was it would have been a valid or a true stop, but I was working on the cover at the time and uh, didn't uh, have any identification on me. I had just finished doing a uh, working a case with about 30 pounds of marijuana in the trunk, uh, a few thousand dollars on the front seat, the gun tucked in my waist and absolutely no ID. Um, it was probably a day where I obeyed every traffic law all the way back to the station. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I can see that uh, there's a lesson to be learned in everything we've talked about today, which started out talking about SWR (laughs) using my nano DNA. We have believed certain myths, apparently, according to this article I shared the link to, that low SWR is what makes an antenna work properly. And after reading this one article, realizing that that may be a myth, that uh, there's, there's other things I need to consider in this aspect of ham radio and uh, just having this one narrow viewpoint and judging every situation based on this is probably not smart. And of course this segued into uh, the various perspectives that we have. I mentioned about the diamond, how with the Hebraic perspective, everybody sees the diamond differently because of the different facets and the way the light reflects off of it. We talked about uh, photography and how diffused light creates a better image a better end result because it's coming at it from many angles and i think uh, what we're showing here is that we have perspectives that are very narrow that are probably kind of dangerous and uh, also creating this culture of hate and distrust you know we we, we know that many people use uh, different phrases for the police force some are derogatory because they have this narrow viewpoint that all cops are bad. They just want to ruin your life and uh, take away your freedom or whatever, you know, or give you a ticket and cost you something. But, uh, and we've always uh, believed that we, a world without cops is bad, but, you know, we don't respect the cops. And so it's because we, we have these narrow perspectives of people that we refuse to listen. We put them in, in categories and boxes. And uh, I mean, like Jim's a classic example, you know, Jim is very open to, express his views as far as his position he 
uh, Jim, you say that you're a, uh, a uh, progressive liberal Democrat, but you don't fit the bill in my estimation because you do own guns and you do have uh, uh, sometimes I, I feel very conservative viewpoints. So when you put that label on yourself as a progressive liberal Democrat, a lot of uh, conservatives would right away just uh, stretch out their arm and say, I'm not listening to you. You're evil and I don't want anything to do with you. But that's not who you are. You know, we don't take the time to listen and walk a mile in the other shoes and, and try and see the world from their viewpoint. And so I think that's going to be the answer. In fact, my wife and I went through this uh, thing called marriage encounter. And uh, what, what it does is it gives you tools to stop for a moment and, and ask important questions like, when I do this, what does that make you feel? And you, you intentionally step into the other person's shoes and try and see that situation from their perspective and then and then consider what your reaction would be. And it's like, oh, I didn't know that. That's the way you feel? <clears throat> and some of the descriptive things would be like, I feel like a little kid who's lost. Well, we might be able to relate to that. So like with Mello was talking about, you know, walk a mile in, in a cop shoes coming up to a car with people in it, you have no idea who it is who may have a gun, may want to kill you. You know, the fear, the uh, the stress, the tensions that you'd feel. It's got to be an awful job. I couldn't I couldn't do it for one. So I think the lesson we need to learn from all of the things we're talking about is uh, don't be so narrow in our viewpoint. Be willing to walk a mile in the other person's shoes. Be respectful and kind and listen to one another. And don't feel like uh, you're the only one that's right and your viewpoint's the only one that's right. And I think the world would be a much different place, a much happier and safe place. I don't know. What do you guys think? That is a beautiful summary, and I have nothing to add that would be of any importance. <laughs> you're absolutely right Denny. that, that and, and Jim that was a, that was a great summary of that and you know one of the I find that one of the advantages of being a minority in a job like this is that because I experienced both sides because I was you know especially when I worked on the cover where I experienced a lot of that being pulled over and uh, for, for no reason other than fishing and, and, and profiling. And that also helped me to just consider how I approach uh, a car, how I approach people in a situation, how I approach any given call. Uh, and honestly, I used to hear all the stories of guys that would come back and say, oh, yeah, you know, how they came to an argument with this one or they had to fight that one. And honestly, in the, in the 20 plus years that I've been doing this job, I've never, of, of, of my own uh, accord or situation, I've never had to roll around with anyone. My attitude was always, they don't pay me enough to roll around with you. I will if you want me to, <laughs> but <laughs> they don't pay me to do that. And so, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, a situation can be diffused and can be worked out just by having a conversation. But then you had that small percentage of, of the population where none of that was going to help. And, and those were the times. But honestly, most of the time that I rolled around with someone, it was because I was backing somebody else uh, up who didn't know how to diffuse the situation and made it worse uh but outside of that you know I, I am thankful that i had the experience on the other side because it did help when i was out on the street dealing with people yeah 
Well, I see a lot of this attitude in the ham radio community, too, from time to time where someone, uh, for example, the difference between VoIP versus real radio. There's a big debate. Well, that's not real radio. You're not a real ham, and we shouldn't have anything to do with that stuff. And yet, from someone who's not a ham coming into this, who maybe is not good at uh, taking these tests, but they, they do enjoy the social aspect of communication with the radio or their phone and so they use applications like Zello or TeamSpeak or whatever the multiple platforms out there that don't require a license. You know, we need we all need to just be more gracious with one another and uh, and uh, go through the buffet and like I say, pick what we want and leave the rest and don't judge someone else for picking something different. And I just used the illustration with uh, friends on another VoIP platform where I said, you know, I could make a big stink about uh, say sushi. I can't understand how anybody would eat raw fish <laughs> and it just repulses me. And so I, I look, I kind of look down sometimes on people that would eat that kind of garbage. And I think, eh, Oh, I can't even stand looking at it. So, so but you know, uh, some people love it. I have a brief story about sushi. Oh, here we go. <laughs> and, and, and we've been on, we've been on for over an hour. So I will try, even though as a professor, I tend to make stories long i'll try to make this one short <laughs> my daughter was uh, she is a veterinarian and when she was in her first year student at purdue university uh studying to be a veterinarian she was in a parasitology class and one night she calls my wife and i and says mom dad do you eat sushi well, yes. Don't ever eat sushi. <laughs> and she, she goes into this, you know, uh, elaborate description of all the diseases you can get from eating raw fish. Uh, parasites, you know, that can enter our body and do horrible things. So uh, we continued to eat sushi. And now all these years later, she comes over to our house and we order sushi out. So it's, but I, I really, I love sushi. And so, uh, you know, well, and, and uh, Jewish people like lox and bagels too, you know, so that's. And Norwegians like, like, uh, what is it? The, the raw fish soaked in lye? Lutefisk. <laughs> Lutefisk, yes. I there was a uh, in Minnesota uh, when I was I was I lived in Minnesota nine years. And one of the funniest and lutefisk was actually served in the faculty club of the University of Minnesota. So, yes, I've had it. <laughs> and uh, what really amused me is that somebody came out with a song. It was around Christmas time. And somebody came out with a song uh, to the tune of Oh Christmas Tree. And it went, Oh, oh Lutefisk, Oh Lutefisk. And I can't remember the rest of it. Google it if you want to find the, the rest of the words. But it was. Well, don't forget the other one. Just what? a little less of it'll go a long day. Give you indigestion most all of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, we've probably done enough damage for today. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
the lesson learned is uh, enjoy the buffet. We all love to eat. Uh, pick what you like and leave the rest and don't judge others who don't have the same taste that you do. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> anyway, thanks, guys. Abel, are you on the road? No, I am. Um, this is my day to kind of hang out here, hang out with family. I got to load up the truck in a little bit and put pack things up. And then uh, 3 a.m. in the morning, Lord willing, I will start my trek. And uh, so I've powered everything up, made sure that all my uh, power sources are uh, fully charged so that I can plug in my uh, hotspots and uh, be ready to uh, chat on the radio while I'm on the road. Well, maybe tomorrow morning we'll uh, hear you here and catch you at a different point in your journey. Uh, Godspeed. Have safe travels. And uh, you guys have a blessed day. Thanks. This has been very stimulating once again. Thank seven you. Thank you. 7-3. Seven seven three, three. 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 Hi, this is Extra Class Amateur Radio Operator, K5DCC. I just upgraded to my extra class last year. You know how I did it? I used HamTest Online. Did you know that HamTest Online is the top rated study program on eham.net? 97% of reviewers gave them five stars. They have more five-star user reviews than all other study methods combined. And success is guaranteed. If you fail the amateur radio license exam, they will refund your subscription. It's a no-brainer. You pass the exam or get a full refund. Try it for yourself at hamtestonline.com. Hello, cafeers. Denny J here in the beautiful Ozarks of Northwest Arkansas, out in the country, 25 miles from any large city. Out here in the country, we struggle to get good internet. Maybe you have the same problem. If you live in a rural area, you don't have many options. It's either satellite or DSL or cellular. And believe me, we've tried them all. Just recently, I was more than happy to pay the penalty to get out of our satellite service. Latency was horrible. And for amateur radio communications, the delays were up to five seconds. And uh, you've probably experienced what that's like. Our DSL service was also very unreliable. We rarely got the speeds that we were promised and it kept dropping out. But now I think I found a service that we're going to love. It's called Visible.com. It's a company that's owned by Verizon and kind of a pared back service, but works beautifully for my situation here out in the country on 15 acres. Visible.com offers only one plan. It's unlimited everything. Unlimited calls, text, and internet at slightly slower speeds than their top drawer plan at Verizon. But it does use the Verizon network. Go to Visible.com and use my referral code 3November37NoVemberTango. Also, to get your $40 a month bill reduced to $25, you need to be part of a party pay group. You can join me in our Digicom Cafe party. You will find the link to these things down in the show notes here, along with links to our Digicom Cafe community portal, which is a Facebook alternative. Also our Telegram community where we have text and voice chat and also our live cafe cast here in the Digicom Cafe. So get your line at visible.com. And again, use my referral code and join our party to get that bill down to $25 a month.
you for listening to this radio on the Rocks Cafe cast. We invite you to join our Mighty Networks amateur radio community at members.digicomcafe.com. <laughs>